Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 214. My name is Terry Frost, and for this one, I'm looking at a couple of American crime movies. One from 1967 and another from 1985. The first one is In the Heat of the Night, directed by Norman Jewison and starring Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. And then we move up to the 80s for a kind of semi-forgotten William Friedkin movie. To Live and Die in L.A. starring William Peterson, Willem Dafoe and John Pankow. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and then we'll get a little bit of crime happening. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You'll even friend me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Uh, Anyway, I'll get on with the show now and um, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so how has everybody been? Um, It's kind of interesting times here and I don't yet know whether some of them are good or bad. Time will tell. But at the moment, I'm kind of up in the air with it. Uh, Last weekend, Sally and I did attend the Australian National Science Fiction Convention Continuum 13. I recorded the last Martian Drive-In podcast there. I caught up with a ton of people, including some of our Patreon supporters. So hi to all of those. And uh, yeah, just basically four days of hanging out, eating... Turkish P-Day and Borek for lunch. Uh, there was a cheap Turkish place that had beautiful Turkish savoury pastries for very low prices, right next to the hotel. We stayed at the hotel, which was always very nice. And, um, yeah, caught up with a ton of people, including people like Kerry Lenahan, who's also a Patreon subscriber to the podcast, uh, who I hadn't seen in over 20 years, but we caught up really well. We had a great time of it and uh, went out to dinner at a Spanish restaurant. Had a good time. Uh, so, yeah, that was kind of good. And But the other side of that, they're doing redundancies where I work, which is kind of problematic, but not necessarily entirely a bad thing. Um, I may well be tapped on the shoulder to leave with a redundancy package, which is kind of okay because there's about a year's pay sitting there should that occur, and I find out in about two or three weeks. And if that's the case, um, I'm going to kind of take it easy for a while, and I may get even more podcasts and movies done. Uh, There are lots of possibilities out there for me. Uh, If worse comes to worse, it may end up being an early retirement which is at the age of 60 is is kind of slightly early but um sal and i have got contingencies for that as well so we'll see how we go but either way we covered for more than a year between the money she has and the money i have we should be okay uh the other thing we do is we bought a new car we bought a new toyota rav4 which pick up on wednesday uh that was planned before this redundancy thing came through so uh that means that we're going to get on the road we're going to do some traveling in the car because uh an 11 year old toyota corolla isn't quite as good as a great big suv so we're going to do some traveling and i may even podcast from the road i'm kind of looking forward to the idea of podcasting on the road so we may well be doing that and of course should this redundancy thing happen we will have a lot more spare time to do that kind of thing so um yeah it's a profound shock in some ways and um has left me a little kind of wobbly in in some respects nonetheless um yeah there there are opportunities there are possibilities for finding a part-time job or or things like that there are ways to manage this fortunately we live in a country with uh, a pretty reasonable safety net so things shouldn't be too bad but uh, yeah, so the kind of interesting times we live in, and um, I'm kind of bitter about one thing, and it's a kind of larger issue than just my own personal conniptions, and that is the increased corporatization and kind of neoliberalist dogma that we live in in the world. It's pissing me off. Uh, the idea that everybody has to have a brand for their personal stuff, even at work. Um, the idea that 
everybody should basically be a tiny company unto themselves, not bargain collectively for things, all those kind of issues, um, do kind of go against the grain for me. And I don't know many people, or many people, but I don't know, let's just say very, very few people who find this a good thing, mostly because the people I know aren't incredibly wealthy. I know a few wealthy people, and that's cool. They're very nice people. I knew them before they were wealthy. But in general, that idea that everybody is a brand that you market to everybody else really pisses me off. I believe we're much more complex than that. I believe we're better than that. So that's the end of that rant. So let's get on with what I've been watching, which is kind of um, what I wanted to do. That's why I'm doing a podcast. Um, yeah, so what have I watched? Uh, I saw a small people by Mark Duplass and his brother, I think his brother's name's Jay, called Table 19. I saw it um, via my Cody box. And it's you know, it's a nice little kind of whimsical comedy from 2017, as it happens. Nice cast in it. Uh, Anna Kendrick, Lisa Kudrow, Craig Robinson. Uh, let's see who else. Margot Martindale, Stephen Merchant. I uh, said, so, you know, no A-listers, but just a kind of good, honest acting cast. And also featuring in this one, which was kind of interesting for me when I did the back stuff on it, was Wyatt Russell's in it. Uh, Wyatt Russell is the son of Goldie Horn and Kurt Russell. Not sure he's got his dad's chops as far as being an actor, but he's not too bad at this. Uh, it's about, um, I'll read it from IMDb because you should check this movie out if you're in the mood for a kind of whimsical comedy with a little bit more depth to it than some of them. Uh, Eloise, having been relieved of maid of honor duties after being unceremoniously dumped by the best man via a text message, decides to attend the wedding anyway, only to find herself seated with five fellow unwanted guests at the dreaded table 19. So it's set at a wedding. Um, it's off on an island in a nice little kind of resort thing on an island. And it's really great because um, there's some slow reveals to the plot. We find out things about the characters, Eloise in particular, but also some of the other characters. In fact, all of the other characters, we have secrets, <laughs> all the people on table um, 19. Some of them are humorous, some of them are, are sad, some of them are kind of life experience things, but... Yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed it. I, I really kind of, you know, it's not a, an A-list movie. It's not f- fall down funny like a Marx Brothers movie, but it's a good, honest little comedy, and I kind of enjoyed it. So I've watched that. Now let me go back to my letterboxed list. Um, let me have a look. Uh, the only other thing I'm going to talk about, I saw The Mummy, the one with Tom Cruise. Now the reason I saw it, which I wasn't going to see at the cinema, was that I have a... Um, the local cinema chain we have is called Village, and I have a Village card, and every time we go to there, I swipe my card, and I build up points, and I eventually get to see a free movie, and I thought, well, yeah, I wanted to see The Mummy anyway, but um, even though I'd heard all the bad things about it, so why not use it as a free ticket, so if it's really bad, I haven't spent any money except to buy an ice cream and a drink, which I did, and yes, it's pretty bad. It's got a few things that are okay with it. But in general, um, it's a Tom Cruise vehicle. You can't start a franchise called Dark Universe where you're reinventing and reimagining all of the universal horror film monsters and start it as a Starvik vehicle. It, it kind of unbalances things. Even though, I mean, the thing to compare it to is probably Iron Man in 2008. Even though um, we did have Robert Downey Jr., as the star in that. It wasn't necessarily a star vehicle. It was a character role with action, which happened to have an actor who, at the time, wasn't the RDJ we know now. Uh, He was kind of considered a punchline. He was recovering from um, various substance abuse issues. Good actor, solid actor, but um, he wasn't the box office he is in the Marvel Cinema franchise now. So, yeah, that was, that's a kind of different situation. So the Tom Cruise one, it's very much a Tom Cruise franchise. If you have a look at the poster of The Mummy, it's got Tom Cruise in the foreground and The Mummy in the background, um, almost half, with only half of her face showing. And that probably demonstrates the problem with this movie, is that Tom Cruise's ego is right up front and centre every fucking moment of the movie. Uh, there are some good character acting bits in there, uh, particularly by Russell Crowe, who's a problematic person, but a good actor. His Dr. Henry Jekyll has some moments, and he seems to be in the right movie. He's kind of playing a slightly tongue-in-cheek, 
but also um, a good character piece. Um, it's an interesting character, and that's kind of cool. Um, Jay Johnson plays a friend of Tom Cruise's kind of thief character uh, who ends up playing the Griffith Dunn role like in American Werewolf in London, which is another thing that people have mentioned and that uh, shows the problems with this movie. The problems are the star, I'll be honest with you. There are some great little moments in there. There could have been a lot more of them. There's some nice imaginative bits in it. But it wasn't scary. And um, one of the mistakes they made with the 1990s Mummy as well is the Mummy is a horror concept. It's not an action concept necessarily. So unbalancing it with too much action and not enough horror takes away this whole dark universe thing that they're trying to generate. You need to have the thing be fucking scary. And it isn't. Um, There's some, as I said, there's some great stuff. It's got high production values. And there are moments where they kind of peeked past Tom Cruise's ego to show little good bits of business. But in general, um, it's not a good film. You'll probably go and see it, particularly if the franchise does kick on with other things they're playing, like Bride of Frankenstein and uh, the other properties. There's a little bit of an Easter egg for the creature from the Black Lagoon in one scene and a few other bits and pieces. But um, everybody wants to have a big, long franchise with a strong property. And this one starts out weak, which is probably a mistake. In fact, it's definitely a mistake. Let's be honest about it. But um, so I watched that. Uh, it's not too long either. It's 110 minutes, so it kind of gets in there, does what it has to do, and gets the fuck out. Uh, there were the usual 300 trailers beforehand, all of which I saw. And the best thing about the whole experience of going and seeing that yesterday was I had a very very nice chocolate-topped ice cream. Uh, anyway, I'm going to take a break now, and when I get back. I'm going to do these in chronological order. We're going to look in, at In the Heat of the Night, starring Rod Steiger, Sidney Poitier, Warren Oates, Lee Grant, and a bunch of very interesting character actors. On your feet, boy. I mean now. Got a name, boy? Virgil Tips. Virgil. Where you come from? There ain't no trains this time of I could have had you shot. Taking me anywhere, you dig? You'll get yourself killed. I'm a police officer. Look, they pay you $162.39 a week just to look at bodies. Why can't you look at this one? Why can't you look at it for yourself? I do not want that Negro officer taken off this case. I need a few things. Touch hairs. Ammonium hydrosulfide, benzidine, superoxide of hydrogen, copper powder, distilled water, calibers. And some toothpicks. Why won't anybody here tell me what's happened to him? Are you sure you're pregnant? Yes, I am pregnant. I can pull that fat cat down. I'm afraid you're a little late, Virgil. We already got the guilty man. May I examine this person? Yeah, you can look at him. Come on, let him look. He's left-handed, isn't he? What's that make him? Innocent. I got the motive, which is money, and the body, which is death. You're holding the wrong man. But don't you push me, boy. They call me Mr. Tibbs.
Seven Nights, a 1967 American mystery drama film directed by Norman Jewison. Uh, it was based on John Ball's novel of the same name. Uh, John Ball did a number of novels with the character of Virgil Tibbs. Now, I'll talk about Mr. Ball first because he's where this all starts. Um, he was he wrote a number of the novels, and I've read a number of them, and they're all um, good, honest kind of mystery thrillers, so, you know, whodunit kind of things. Um, interesting guy himself. He wasn't a person of colour, but um, he very much was in favour of civil rights, and he wanted to create a kind of good, upright, upstanding and personable um, police detective, and so he created Virgil Tibbs. Mr. Ball himself was interesting. He was an amateur magician, he was a nudist, and he wrote these novels. So, yeah, um, this is the second writer I know that's a nudist. I knew another one as well. But, um, yeah, so the setup's pretty interesting, and to really appreciate the impact this movie had, you've got to consider it from a 1967 point of view. Holding that thought... I'll just go over the cast and crew. Oh, we've got Sidney Poitier playing Virgil Tibbs, a Philadelphia homicide detective who happens to be in the town of Sparta, Illinois, having visited his mother. He's waiting for a train at the train depot and um, is picked up by the police when a murder occurs in the town and the black stranger sitting in the um Depot is obviously the first suspect. We have Rod Steiger as Bill Gillespie, the local sheriff. Warren Oates as Sam Wood, one of the patrolmen. Lee Grant as the murder victim's wife, uh, Mrs. Colbert. Uh, we also have William Shallot turning up as the mayor of the town, who also runs a small manufacturing industry. And a few other people. We've got Matt Clark in there, a character actor who's been around for a long time. Scott Wilson as one of the suspects, a guy called Harvey Oberst. Scott Wilson, on the recommendation of Sidney Poitier, went on to play one of the murderers in In Cold Blood around the same time. Um, we've also got Anthony James turning up as a guy running a uh, diner. And, um, yeah, and B. Richards as Mama Kaliba, also known as Mrs. Bellamy, who features very strongly in the end of the film. The movie was directed by Norman Jewison, who had a great run with things like The Thomas Crown Affair, the 1968 one, Fiddler on the Roof, Jesus Christ Superstar, we'll forget that one, Rollerball, um, Agnes of God, Moonstruck, uh, let's see, Dinner with Friends, and uh, a number of others, including In the Heat of the Night, came just after his success with the Cincinnati Kids starring Steve McQueen and just before the Thomas Crown Affair, of which I have spoken on a previous Paleo Cinema podcast. Uh, the screenplay was adapted by Sterling Sillivant, um, who died oddly enough at the age of 78 in Bangkok. For most of his career, he was known as a television writer. He did stuff for Route 66 and Naked City, Playhouse 90, Perry Mays and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and a number of other ones. Uh, but he did go on to direct, um, uh, sorry, to write a number of other screenplays, um, including Nightfall, the Jacques Tourneur film, a film that I saw not too long ago called Huck, which is set in the Philippines and starred George Montgomery. Uh, let's see, he won an Academy Award for In the Heat of the Night, which is kind of cool. And he also has penned the screenplay for one of my vulgar black exploitation pleasures, Shaft in Africa. So, um, yeah, and then, of course, we've got the cinematographer, Haskell Wexler. Now, we've got to give real props to Has Haskell Wexler, which is hard to say fast three times, um, because this is the first Hollywood feature film that lit the set in a way that enhanced the features of black actors, because previously the way that um, cinematography worked in Hollywood, because of the way the lighting and the makeup worked, um, the features of black characters were indistinct. Uh, everything was lit for white complexions and tanned ones, one assumes, given that Los Angeles is the film capital of the world. But uh, Wexler decided that he was going to kind of light this one in a way that really did do justice to Sidney Poitier and the other black actors, of whom there are only three with talking parts. In, in the heat of the night. So all credit to him for that. And it, it kind of changed the way that cinematography was done when there were black actors 
on the screen. But back to the movie itself. Uh, a wealthy uh, investor who's building a factory in the town of Sparta, Mississippi, is killed on a, and is found on the side street near his car. And, of course, Virgil Tibbs is the first person they pick up because he's a stranger and he's sitting in their train depot. They, of course, then find out that he's a cop, as the um, as the trailer tells us, and he soon finds out that the local cops are out of their depth in dealing with a murder and finding out who um, actually did it. They tended to go for the obvious people. First it's him, then it's the guy who picked up the dead man's wallet and was found with it. Um, then, you know, basically they, they get it wrong a number of times. Then they even accuse Sam, one of their own deputies, because of circumstantial evidence. They've got no idea of cause and effect, and, and particularly um, Bill Gillespie, the sheriff, really doesn't know how to play a complex crime. He's out of his depth. He's not going to, at first, take the assistance of a very knowledgeable and, and very intelligent and fuck knows, very patient black cop from the north. Now, the racial tensions play a strong part in this film, of course, and people kind of changing their viewpoint based on Virgil Tibbs is another part of it. The investigation continues. Um, One of the people implicated as a possibility in being involved in the murder is a wealthy landowner in um, the town. And we see a really great scene with him. The character is played by a character actor called Larry Gates, whose face you'll know when you see it. Um, He's got a black lawn jockey statue on his front lawn. He's um, got black servants. And at some stage, while he's being questioned by Gillespie and Virgil Tibbs, he slaps Sidney Poitier, who immediately slaps him back. And the menace of a wealthy black man in the South in 1967 being slapped by a black man really is palpable. And there is that tension all through the film on the kind of repressed violence of being a black man and a black man who knows more than white men in um, rural South of America in the 1960s. In fact, they filmed most of this in Illinois because it was too dangerous to film in the South. This is the time when civil rights were a big issue. The Academy Award that this movie won five awards for, the Academy Award ceremony, was delayed because of the death of Martin Luther King. It was delayed two days. So that's the environment that this worked on. They did film a couple of scenes in the South, the bits with the cotton fields, because there weren't any cotton fields in Illinois. And Sidney Poitier said he slept with a gun under his pillow for those few days that they were down there. And some racial tensions caused the production to quickly get the fuck out of there and back north of the Mason-Dixon line so that they can continue filming the movie. So it's a very kind of politically and emotionally and racially charged film. And it, uh, the character of Virgil Tibbs is interesting because he's got that thing that both women and non-white people have. Um, Virgil Tibbs has to be twice as good as a white person at what he does to be recognised at all. And he has to kind of repress his natural pride, his achievement, in a number of scenes. Uh, That bit where he says, they call me Mr. Tibbs, just kind of vibrates with palpable, repressed anger and outrage and disappointment even that the character has. And Poitier um, always had this skill and he's very good at kind of showing that kind of repression of natural instinct and natural emotion that people of colour still to this day in Australia as well, Indigenous people as well, um, that in order to get along, you've got to kind of repress and choke down a lot of um, insult that occurs both at the top end of politics and at the grassroots level of just living your life in society. That's one of the very strong themes that comes through in, in the heat of the night. And there are a few scenes where Virgil Tibbs' life is very much in peril. There's one where four guys gang up on him and chase him into a factory and uh, start coming at him with chains and iron bars. 
there's another scene right at the climax of the film where he has a shotgun and a pistol aimed at him by two different groups of white people. And he kind of thinks his way through that. Uh, so the, the violence that occurs is fast and brief. And it um, really, you know, this movie essentially is a murder mystery. And given that um, you can't really go over the top with the violence and you can't have a protagonist who they wanted to bring along to other um, films, the, the book series was quite popular at the time. They did do a sequel to this movie called They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, which I haven't seen for a few decades, which I really should revisit. But um, In the Heat of the Night popped up at me. I'll, show you how, I'll tell you how I got it. Basically, I was at um, a, what they call a second-hand store, uh, one of the charity stores around town. Saw a copy of it for five bucks and thought, yeah, I've been meaning to see that movie again. I know it's a quality film, and it might be good for the podcast. So I picked it up for five bucks at uh, the charity store and brought it home. And it was in good nick. There was nothing wrong at all with the disc, so um, I quite enjoyed watching it again. But yeah, um, they filmed a lot of it in the north, and it was really kind of awkward. There's a scene filmed at night outside the diner where you can see the steam of the breath of Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier. But for the most part, they had to kind of chew ice and then spit it out so that their breath wasn't too hot, so it didn't show the steam. Uh, they filmed it in autumn in the north. Uh, you can tell that, particularly in the scenes where Scott Wilson is being chased by um, a bunch of hound dogs and the cops, where all the leaves are looking autumnal around there, even though the movie is called In the Heat of the Night, was supposed to be set in the summertime in the south. There are a couple of scenes that give away the fact that it wasn't. But uh, to get on to Rod Steiger's acting, I think Sidney Poitier deserved an Oscar better than Rod Steiger did, to be honest with you. Um, his acting is very contained and internal, and I like the way it's done. Uh, he's respectful of the um, people around him, be they white or black. He wants to get to the bottom of this um, mystery of this murder to, into which he's reluctantly drawn because he doesn't want to get involved with these people. It's only when he realises that the suspects they're pulling in and may well railroad into a guilty verdict aren't guilty that his innate sense of justice forces him to stick around and be a, um, a party to the investigation. So um, he's really good. The other person that I really liked in this film is Lee Grant playing the wife of the murder victim. Her outrage and her resolute um, decision that Virgil Tibbs is the person to help find who killed her husband um, is incredibly well acted. Um, it, the, also, the, the fact that she's grieving and yet has to deal with the, the locals' shit She's got to identify the body. She's um, got to uh, kind of put up in the cop shop with the brusqueness and, and the kind of lack of regard that they hold for her. Um, really kind of... Um, it, there is, she's got about four or five scenes in the movie and she plays them with an honesty and a forthrightness that really lifts the game of the whole film. So I really liked her in the film. By the way, there were two sequels to um, In the Heat of the Night. They Call Me Mr. Tibbs in 1970 and The Organisation in 1971. Uh, there was in 1988 a TV series based on In the Heat of the Night, but I never really liked that, even though it had Carol O'Connor in it. I think that um, going back to the town and, and making the uh, Virgil Tibbs character a cop in a, a southern town kind of didn't work. I think this movie has to be set when it's set. In 1960s, just as civil rights are becoming a big issue, but racism is still rampant, which of course it is to this very day, uh, but a lot more subterranean. Uh, yeah, I think that it's very much of its time, and the reason it won Best Picture, the reason it got Rod Steiger an Oscar, which is a good acting role. I'm not trying to put down Rod Steiger's acting. Rod Steiger was an actor that... Um, always played loud and brash. I could never see him playing an understated character, though he did do it in The Illustrated Man. But for the general part, you know, over-the-top brash. Um, his southern accent is kind of generic, 
Whereas people like Warren Oates, who genuinely was from the South, they think he's from Kentucky or somewhere like that. Let me find that out because I don't want to get this wrong. Um, War- because I'm reading a biography of Warren Oates and kind of intermittently, I'm, I'm dipping into it now and then. And I know he started out piss poor. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, Kentucky. Depoy, Millenburg County, Kentucky. So I got that right. Um, yeah, and he's quite good at it. It's one of those roles just before Warren Oates became the kind of lovable character that we know from movies like um, Tulane Blacktop and, of course, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. But, um, yeah, I, I like him in this one too. We've got Anthony James, who was in all sorts of different films. He was in Vanishing Point. He was also in one of the Naked Gun movies with um, Leslie Nielsen. So he's in there. William Shallot, of course, was in everything, including being Patty Duke's father in the Patty Duke show. Um, yeah, there are, so there are lots of different character actors who um, I, I like a lot in this film. But the, essentially, the main part of it is that racial relations thing apart from being a bloody good murder mystery and it does address all sorts of issues of the time as well and some of them were quite controversial including um abortion that's dealt with as well and i'm not going to do spoilers into that for you um race relations of course um the lack of resources and training in police forces in poor areas across the United States, which of course is still going on, is affected deliberate policy by certain people. But the lack of resources, which means injustice, has a chance to thrive. That's one of the main themes in the movie as well. But um, in general, I really enjoyed watching this because um, there are, there's a great moment with Drod Steiger and Sidney Poitier in um, Gillespie's house where they're both sitting down and they've had a few drinks and that was partly improvised by the two actors. And I think that's the truest moments of the film as far as those two actors are concerned, as far as those two characters are concerned because Bill Gillespie, the sheriff, knows he's out of his depth. He's a lonely man. He suffers from insomnia. He um, really, you know, he drinks to let himself go to sleep, in fact. And um, he becomes a much more complex character in our eyes in that one scene. He could be seen as a cliched character, the redneck southern sheriff who's racist and um, bossy and none too bright. But he's given a little bit of extra depth by a few scenes there. And um, even though I would have rather Poitier had gotten an Oscar for this one, it's not a disservice to the Oscars that Rod Steiger got one. He really did um, show a complex character to us in this film. Though I think Lee Grant should have fucking got one as well. But anyway, that's pretty much it for In the Heat of the Night. See it, I'm now going to have to watch They Call Me Mr. Tibbs in the organisation, of course. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed kind of revisiting that. I hadn't seen it for a number of decades. But it's a movie that has aged well and even though there's a number of the n-words in there and of course a movie at that time you're going to get that kind of thing um it it holds up well as an honorable part of the history of cinema particularly in the 1960s where people were telling more complex stories about race and it's also a bloody good murder mystery so anyway i'm going to take another break and when i get back we're going to talk about a very different approach to crime and punishment William Freakin's 1985 film, To Live and Die in L.A. You've got balls coming here. How are you making it? Like every other swinging dick in this place makes it. Day by motherfucking day. I'll sir acting up. I want to know when you're going to get me out. I want you to be patient a little longer, Carl. I got caught carrying for you. Now it's my turn for some consideration. You have my word. You won't have to do the whole nickel. What does that mean? Grimes is the best lawyer in the state. It'll either be an appeal bond or the sentence reduction. And the check is in the mail, and I love you, and I promise not to come in your mouth. I'm doing everything I can. Carl, we got to talk about Waxman. Well, what about him? He was your last stop before the airport. What are you saying? He said you never delivered the package. That's Willem Dafoe and um, 
John Turturro in a prison scene from To Live and Die in L.A. 1985 American crime film directed by William Friedkin uh, based on a novel which I have a copy of somewhere here in the Man Cave by a guy called Gerald Petrovich who used to be a Secret Service agent. Uh, it stars William Peterson, William Defoe, John Pankow. I might have said Stuart, but I meant John. Um, John Turturro, Darlene Flugel, and Dean Stockwell. The music, which is very 80s synthy stuff, is by Wang Chun. And um, the cinematographer for this one, which I really um, is a guy called Robbie Mueller, and really does... Um, he was a Dutch cinematographer, in fact. Let's see what he's kind of done. He did uh, The American Friend in 1977, Honeysuckle Rose. They all laughed. He did Repo Man, Paris, Texas, Barfly, oh, Mystery Train, uh, 24-Hour Party People, and Coffee and Cigarettes. So he's obviously worked with Jarmusch. But uh, the cinematography is really great, and it's got that um, thing where... One of the useful things with cinematographers, and sometimes directors as well, is having a director who's not from or familiar with the place that where the films are being filmed. And you get that kind of outsider's viewpoint a little bit, and the, and the telling details that are brought out by people who aren't terribly familiar with the location can often work to really enhance a film. Uh, to live and die in LA, the one-line pricey from IMDb is a fearless Secret Service agent will stop at nothing to bring down the counterfiller. Sorry, let's start again. A fearless Secret Service agent will stop at nothing to bring down the counterfeiter who killed his partner. Um, the partner was played by an actor called Michael Green, who's been around for a long time and has a very familiar face. Now, there's a famous line from Lethal Weapon, which came out three years after this film. But Michael Green actually says it in a similar context three years before Danny Glover does. Listen to this. I get too old for this shit. Yeah, so in the context of a policeman being old and um, just having done something really heroic in this case, um, stopping a suicide bomber from blowing up a building by basically pulling him off the building from below, says that. Um, uh, something which, of course, Shane Black borrowed for Lethal Weapon, which became a running joke. So the big bad guy in this one is Eric Masters, known as Rick, played by Willem Dafoe. He's an artist um, and a counterfeiter, and he's a kind of weirdly self-destructive artist in the fact that he he destroys his artworks. We see him in a very visually interesting moment where he pins one of his um, canvases up against uh, the outside wall of a house and sets it on fire and then stands in front of the burning canvas. Um, There's a kind of mirror image of Richard Chance, William Peterson's character, who has a kind of death wish almost. He's a thrill seeker. He jumps off bridges with cables tethered to his feet. And in general, he's he's a very self-destructive kind of person. Secret Service agent. Um, you think they'd give these guys psychological tests, but in the context of this movie, it's all about the action and it's all about the special effects. The list of stuntmen's almost longer than the list of cast members of this film. There are a lot of other interesting people in this one as well. Um, as I said, you're Totoro playing one of um, Willem Dafoe's henchmen in a sense, and it's an early role for Totoro, but he's very good in it. You've got Dean Stockwell playing Bob Grimes, a bent lawyer. And he's, again, very good. And amongst other things, you've got Robert Downey Sr. playing a guy called Thomas Bateman, who is the Secret Service boss of Pankow and Peterson's characters. Um, Downey Sr. is an interesting choice. That he's got a, a quite a broad New York accent, educated but broad New York accent. And it kind of doesn't fit in with the west coast kind of feel of the rest of the film which makes it kind of interesting but um you also got um one a black guy called jeff rice who is laundering some of the counterfeit money for um masters and he's played by steve james who had a short career in the 80s in action films quite an interesting actor um nice martial artist as well Died fairly early, unfortunately, but it's good to see Steve James in things, um, particularly these 
slightly more prestige films above the stuff he normally did. Now, when I say prestige, Friedkin didn't have an enormous budget for this one. He wanted to put all every dollar up on the screen. Uh, and so he didn't get any really big star names for the film. A couple of years before, he'd had a, quite a controversial release called Cruising, starring Al Pacino, which looked at um, gay themes and not necessarily in a positive light. Uh, there's some very controversial bits of, of that film, uh, which has been covered in the past by, um, I think Silver and Gold did it. I'm fairly sure they did. But I definitely know that The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema did it. And quite well. Um, I haven't watched it for a while. I really should um, check out Cruising. I have seen Boys in the Band. I've talked about that um, briefly in a podcast before which is the other freaking film about um, gay gentlemen. And, um, yeah, it's because Freakin's career wasn't necessarily going in the upward arc that it started out with, with French Connection, amongst other things, um, he, he didn't have a large budget for this one, even though there are a lot of stunts in this. There's a fantastic chase scene where um, Defoe and um, Pankow not Defoe, sorry, um, Whitley Peterson and Pankow, are driving the wrong way on an LA freeway. And it's beautifully um, filmed, it's beautifully shot, it's beautifully blocked. And the stunt work in it is fantastic. Um, it was one of those films where you wish they had a little more image stabilizing ability in when they were making this one because there are some shaky looking shots there because the camera gimbals didn't have that intuitive kind of you know removing the shaky bits that um, modern cinema cameras have now as i said it's very 1980s you got skinny jeans on william peterson you got big hair on the women and um yeah plus the wang chun soundtrack it's incredibly slotted into that particular point of time. Um, one of the things I liked about Peterson's character, Chance, is he drank espressos. Normally, um, in American films, you get people drinking great big mugs of that horrible muck they call coffee. But um, Chance drinks espresso. And I kind of appreciated that. I thought, yep, my kind of guy, you always trust someone who drinks espresso. There's no bullshit in an espresso drinker. Um, but somebody who drinks those great big horrible mugs of coffee that they have um, in America. Yeah, well, it's problematic for me, let's just say. I'm a coffee snob, and I'm unashamed in that. Uh, one of the nice things is, too, when uh, Jimmy, the um, guy played by um, Michael Green, the older partner, of course, gets killed. That's part of the arc of these sort of movies. There's a nice scene when Chance finds the body in a dumpster beside this large shed in the desert where they were doing the counterfeiting. And all you need to see is his expression as he lifts the dumpster lid and the sound of flies. You don't need to kind of go the graphic thing showing the decaying body or anything like that. It's conveyed really economically and really well just by his facial expression and the folded-in sound of flies blowing. I like that. That kind of tells what you need to tell in an economical way. The other character I really like in this, and I'm kind of looking at people punching above their weight in movies. Uh, Darlan Flugel plays um, Ruth, who is Chance's informant and mistress. Um, he keeps her out of jail, keeps her parole going. She's got a kid who lives with her father interstate, and so she's got a, a bit of a backstory, and she gets information for him, and there's a possibility she may have, at one stage later in the film, set him up for something. But Darlene Flugel, very attractive actor. Um, there's a nude scene which um, shows that she was a very beautiful woman at the time. Still kind of working off and on as an actor, but not as much because women who act at a certain level in cinema, when they get older, tend to get fewer opportunities. But she is really good as the character. Um, she's... Uh, very acquisitive. She wants to make money because her main job is working at the counter, letting people into a strip club, which has got a great name. It's called Shipwreck Joey's Cabaret. 
topless from 11am and it says a sign on the door um, and it's a sleazy kind of place and, and very kind of dodgy and down market and uh, she has, has expenses and, and she's known she's being fucked by chance not only just sexually and carnally but she's being fucked by him also as his snitch because she keeps telling him how dangerous the information she's getting is if anybody finds out about it and he totally disregards that. He's he's in his own zone. He wants to get revenge for his partner's death. And he's willing to throw her under a bus to do it. Um, very unsavory character. There's nobody here who's un- an unclouded good guy or an unclouded bad guy, in a sense. Um, the relation- There's a relationship between uh, a woman called Bianca and Eric Masters which shows the kind of softer side of him, even though he's as kinky as a clock spring. Chance himself is a dubious character. It really is kind of moot which of the, whether the antagonist or the protagonist are the hero of the piece and which one's morally a better person because neither of them really is. They're both um, obsessed. They're both uh, willing to go anywhere to get to get their, what they want or what they need psychologically. And they're both bastards, basically. Uh, the John Pankow character, John Vukovic, who comes in as a replacement partner, is kind of interesting. He, he's a third-generation cop. And at the start of the film, he's very straight and narrow. He doesn't want to do anything dodgy. He doesn't want to kind of go into the grey areas. And um, basically, he doesn't want to be chance. Um, very underrated actor, John Pankow. Uh, he... He's done a lot of stage work, but we because of these the way his face is and and his look, he was never going to get the leading man roles. And there's always a kind of certain facial features lead themselves to certain kind of roles for actors. And John Pankow's face doesn't show strong resoluteness. He may be very much a resolute person in real life. Uh, people aren't the way they look often. But um, his kind of character actor persona is not a heroic one. Let's just put it that way. I'm, I'm trying to be kind because it's, I can't help how he looks and the kind of roles that come his way because of that. But um, he does have a, an arc which is very interesting and particularly in the last scene of the film. Uh, there's some aspects to that which are very uncomfortable. There's a third act twist in this film that I'd forgotten about because I saw the film, it would have been on VHS in the late 80s, even early 90s, and I had forgotten the twist. In fact, I've forgotten a lot about the film. But having said that, um, I liked it. I think it fits well within the structure of the movie. There was some argument about whether they did that twist when they were making the film, they shot alternatives, but they went back to this ending for the film because it was right to do that. And it, it really, yeah, it was the apt one to do. And I'm comfortable with that too. It does fit into um, the arc of several characters and also when shows the, the thing which guns right activists inevitably forget, which is once a guy pulls a gun in a room, for whatever reason, whether he's defending his family, whether he's trying to rob somebody, there's an immense increase in the chaos in that room. The randomness, people aren't going to react the way you think they're going to react. Things aren't going to go down the way you think they're going to go down. Guns are a game changer in events in a lot of ways, particularly when they're aimed at somebody else. And this movie shows that in a locker room scene towards the end of the film. I'm not going to do too many spoilers on it. By the way, I should mention this now, which is useful for all of you out there who are interested in seeing this film. It's In its entirety, it is on YouTube. Now, whether it is a righteous copy or not, I do not know. There may be a permission. Um, I doubt it, but there may be permission. But if you do want to see To Live and Die in L.A. and you haven't got the shekels or the resources to buy a copy, it is available on YouTube right now. The other thing I like about the film is that a lot of the things that occur during the movie, a lot of the character bits, a lot of the plot twists, a lot of the attitudes 
were emulated in subsequent works. So you get a lot of a lot of TV movies of bor- and TV series are borrowed from movies like To Live and Die in LA. So some of the tropes and some of the twists and some of the plots and some of the characters start to look cliche from our viewpoint because we're seeing them through the filter of all those subsequent films and TV shows that have borrowed bits from movies like this. But to see, I remember seeing it the first time and being blown away because of the way it was. It's a good free connection film. The characters are precise and sleazy in some cases. They have very fine actors doing the work. Even William Peterson, who's an actor who's never been incredibly distinguished as an actor, he was better suited to the CSI thing he did on television for many years. There are actors who play better on a small screen than a big screen for some reason. I don't know how it works. I'm not Stanislavski. But um, I think in this role he's good, and the ensemble really works. Having Defoe as the antagonist, and the uh, protagonist and antagonist only meet up a couple of times during this film. Um, having the character actors supporting them. One of the things about having a lower budget is you're going to make some kind of second-grade choices as far as actors to appear in your film are concerned. And sometimes that can work. I mean, Willem Dafoe wasn't a big star at the time this film came out. Um, William Peterson, of course, wasn't a big star. Uh, Totoro definitely wasn't. Dean Stockwell was a jobbing actor and had been since he was about six years old back in the 1940s and the rest of them were just good solid character actors and there's something to be admired admired sorry in a film like that where the character actors are given their little moment and given that kind of ability to just kind of you know add a little bit to it because it's a fairly low budget film and the director's looking for something because they haven't got the budget to do the first thing they wanted to do and so in a sense actors are given their head a little more in indie films and smaller budget films than in tightly controlled and managed larger budget films. And I think that very much works in favour of To Live and Die in LA. It really does kind of bring something. I do like that cinematography too. Um, LA is a character in this one. There's no way it couldn't be. Uh, there's a, The car chase is actually starts out... Um, around some railroad tracks and with a a great big freight train. It drops into the LA River, which is one of the iconic locations, of course, in Los Angeles. Then it gets back on the streets. Then it gets into a highway and then it goes into a suburban and predominantly black neighbourhood where things finish for that car chase. And I like that. It really does kind of give you a whole bunch of different locations. Uh, They must have gone through so many sets of springs and tyres on those cars to do what they did it is quite impressive um it's not visually as impressive as some of the stuff you see in say a fast and the furious movie but it's real um those car stunts were done by real people in real cars there weren't any special effects there wasn't any wire work and cg and all the rest of it that you see in more modern car films but um, the car chase in this one really did work. Freakin' talked to the stunt guys and said, listen, if you can't make this at least as good as the one in French Connection, we're not going to put it in the film. And I think they kind of did it in a, in a different context. It's just as exciting a car chase as Popeye Doyle slash Gene Hackman's one in French, the French Connection. I think I think it's, it's at that level, but with a totally different location. doesn't add a shit ton to the plot, but it's, um, you know, it kind of works, and it uh, takes, also, takes the film away from being talking heads in various locations. Having that kind of action in there is a circuit breaker to let you get to the next emotional state that the movie wants to take you to. But uh, I, I did enjoy this. I picked it up, I think it was like three bucks. Um, I like telling people where I pick up movies sometimes. Sometimes I just buy them in the um, big stores. But this one, Sally and I were sitting in Sydney on a stinking hot day um, earlier in the year, early this year. And we found a place called uh, CEX. I'm not sure if it's pronounced six dollars, but what it does is it sells used game consoles, computer games of various kinds, DVDs and Blu-rays. And I was looking through their cheap stuff, and I found two that I really wanted to have. One of them was this "To Live and Die in L.A." The other one was 
McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the Robert Altman film. So I picked up both of those for the price of, you know, less than the price of two cups of coffee. And I like that. I, I like the fact that you can kind of wander around and ramble through these secondhand places and go, shit, I remember that film. That film was good. And they're asking pocket change for me to buy it. Um, of course you're going to buy it. <laughs> that's that's the simple fact of the matter. Um, and I love doing that. Uh, that's why we've got two walls of a room laminated in movies now. Those little serendipitous discoveries, uh, the support of the Patreon people for various things that I buy for the podcast, and just that kind of incessant urge to have and own copies of quality and sometimes not too high quality films that I really like. I did like revisiting To Live and Die in LA, as I did with In the Heat of the Night as well. I think that there, it's easy to forget the crime films between, say, 1960 and 1990 and into the 1990s even, they don't get a lot of love. They're not going to be temporal releases by anybody in any um, movie releasing company, but they're a good part of a catalogue. They're very much of their time, in the heat of the night, definitely with the civil rights aspect, and to live and die in LA with the 1980s setting and the synthy score by Wang Chun, and the clothing and the big hair and the attitudes, and everybody smoking indoors in office buildings, all that kind of shit. Um, it really does work. Um, you see it if you haven't seen it, you do need to see this film. If you haven't seen it in a while, enjoy it. It really does have the quality there. I don't think it's perfect by any means. I think that um, there's a nihilistic aspect to the film that some people might not be comfortable with, but it is a good, honest thriller and um, action flick with some interesting characters. I think that maybe the writing of the characters might have been a little stronger had they had a bit more money, but nonetheless, I think it's a good, honest job. Uh, they're the only two provisos that I've got about the film. One is the um, yeah the the fact that the characters were slightly underwritten, and the other aspect of it I didn't like is the fact that Freakin didn't have enough money to do it quite the way he wanted to do it. So that's about it for this time around. Ah, uh, we got through it. We got to the end. Um, as I said, it's been a kind of a rough week with all the kind of news that I've had this week. And so pushing through and doing a podcast was a little harder than it usually is. But um, I like these films. I may even do McCabe and Mrs. Miller soon, but I am doing some westerns coming up um, when I get my shit together. I'm going to get a couple of people to guest on the podcast when I do the westerns. I'm looking forward to doing a couple of classic westerns for you. Anyway, um, I should mention too that I had a chat with Kerry Lanahan, who's one of the Patreon supporters of this podcast, and his um, title in the credits is going to be Best Boy. So having said that, and the other Kerry hasn't told me what he wants his credit to be, but having said that, as usual at the end of the podcast, I'm going to um, play the credits in the style of movie credits for the Patreon supporters who chuck in as little as a dollar a month to help out the podcast. And if you're not up for that and you do enjoy the podcast, here's how you can help. Tell your friends to listen to it. Um, I've talked to a couple of people who heard about the podcast through their friends. In fact, I talked to a couple of people at Continuum 13 last weekend about that. Um, Martian Driving is a little bit easier because it's genre films and I can cherry pick whatever I want to talk about with it. But um, Paleo Cinema is something special because I'm trying to find the best hidden or forgotten gems. In fact, if I was going to rename the podcast now for us starting over back in 2007, I might have called it something like Hidden Gems of Cinema Podcast because that's essentially what it is. So anyway, look after yourselves. I'll be back next week with another Martian Driving podcast in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. Look after yourselves. Um, send a like to iTunes if you'd like to uh, and write a review. Tell people what you like about the podcast. Tell me what you don't like. You can also do the feedback at um, feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. Um, I'm feeling quite good at the moment. Uh, I think I may have decided that I will take the package and kind of stop working for a while which will be kind of nice and it gives me more time to do these things 
But um, one way or the other, thank you to everybody who's offered support on social media because I did make a bit of an announcement about it and the love that I got back from a lot of people, including podcast listeners, is something uh, I find very heartening and something that even when I don't think I deserve it, I feel heartened by it. So look after yourselves. I'll look after me and Sal and um, I'll be back soon. And of course... Here are the credits to the podcast in the style of movie credits. See you later. Oh, yeah, I might put a music track at the end of it just for a bit of fun. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller. Sarah, our special effects technician. Ian, our caterer. Grant, our technicolor consultant. Claire, our script doctor. Gary, our prop master. Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Kerry, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our Director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our Transportation Co-Captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. Some people dress cause they dress when they dress But he gets dressed to get dressed It's only a hunch, but I'll bet you a bunch He wears suspenders, a belt, and a vest From the tip of his toes to his head He look like an unmade bed You've either got or you haven't got style If you got it, you stand out a mile A flower's not a flower if it's wilted A hat's not a hat till it's tilted You've either got or you haven't got class how it draws the applause of the masses When you wear lapels like the swellest of swells You can pass any mirror and smile You've either got or you haven't got Got or you haven't got Got or you haven't got Style You've either got or you haven't got style. Got or you haven't got style. If you've got it, it stands out a mile. Got it, it stands out a mile. With mother pearl kind of buttons, you'll look like the asters and huttons. You've either got or you haven't got class Got or you haven't got class How it draws the applause of the masses When you wear lapels like the swellest of swells You can pass any mirror and smile You've either got or you haven't got Child or you haven't got Child Style and charm seem to go arm in arm. They kinda go arm in 
not a flower if it's wilted. A hat, not a hat, till it's tilted. You've either got or you haven't got stars. Got it, you stand out among you stand out among you stand out among when you wear those duds, duds with white tie and studs, watch those dolls lining up single fire. You'll be the gut, or you have. Come on, get some clothes on or we'll be late for breakfast.